Looking for inspiration to go on extraordinary journeys? UB Cool Talks features the inspiring stories of Red Bull athletes, Olympic champions, National Geographic explorers, and others that will make you want to live your life to the fullest. What are you waiting for? Start listening today. UB Cool Talks is the podcast arm from ubicool.com, the fastest growing online adventure booking platform offering over 70 destinations through partnerships with over 650 companies. Dear explorers, my name is Medina Ilyasova, and today is our first UB Cool Talk with Manal Rostum, the first hijabi woman to be featured in an international Nike campaign. She is also the first Egyptian woman to run the Great Wall Marathon and the founder of the Surviving Hijab Facebook group, which has over 570,000 members. Guys, thank you so much, uh, first of all, for uh, being here. Uh, it, it's an honor. And I always say this before any talk, but like, I've never, ever, ever felt or, or like thought in my life that there will come a day when I'm actually uh, like giving a talk and there are people listening to what I have to say. So every time I give a talk, and this is like my seventh or, or ninth talk, I, I, like, I'm not quite sure, but it still feels like uh, surreal. So my talk today is uh, um, entitled From Surviving Hijab, and I'll, I'll explain that, to the face of the Nike Pro Hijab, and I'm gonna take you through how all these changes came about in my life. I just have a disclaimer slide to show first. Um, first of all, the experience shared in my presentation are those of someone, which is me, who took opportunities as they presented themselves Nothing stopping you to do the same. We all make choices. I have had some made for me, others I have made um, myself. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm just gonna start with a very brief uh, intro. Why am I here, who am I, and um, what's my story? So my name is Manal Rustum, I'm, I'm Egyptian. I'm 38 years old, I'm single, I'm not married, no kids, and that's okay. And this is a message for the women all around. Because I grew up with a stigma thinking that if I hit a certain age, in Egypt it's 20, 25, and I'm not married, it's a very big deal. And then it completely um, like drowns you in your thoughts and, and prevents you from doing so many things. So I'm not married. I, I would love to get married though, so I'm just putting it out there. just hasn't happened because it's fate. Um, I studied pharmacy in, uh, in, in Egypt, uh, and I have a master's degree in clinical pharmacy. I grew up in Kuwait. I was born and raised in Kuwait, actually. Moved to Dubai in 2011 with work. I was working for a multinational company, and I'm glad that one of my clients or customers is here. And then I lost my job a year and a half ago, and because I have been in fitness, like doing like part-time, um, you know, like I'm a certified Les Mills instructor and a personal trainer that I was doing on the side, now I'm actually doing this uh, full-time, which is also okay. Um, also, I have a few like major accomplishments that sometimes you might, you know, see the face and you know, but you've never put the name to the face. So I'm actually the first hijabi to be ever uh, featured in a Nike uh, Middle East campaign, and for me, this is a huge accomplishment. Thank you. Um, I'm the first hijabi Nike Run Club coach and Nike trainer to be hired by Nike on a global level. So Nike has never ever um, hired someone in hijab and like I broke that um, stereotype. Um, in 2017, I became the face of the Nike Pro Hijab last March. I have a group on Facebook that has uh, almost half a million women, actually half a million women plus. It's called Surviving Hijab and um, 
and, and Medina is also on it. Yeah. Um, I'm the first Egyptian woman to run the China Wall Marathon in May 2016. Uh, that was a massive accomplishment uh, for me. In Egypt, they gave me these titles. I didn't tell them to give me these titles, but I'm known as Egypt's most prominent mar marathoner and female mountaineer. So apparently, we are 90 million Egyptians in Egypt, but there are no marathoners except me. Or, or there, there are a few, but like, like I'm, they call me the most prominent and um, the, like uh, most prominent female mountaineer because currently there's only one guy who's done like the seven summits, which is absolutely amazing. I'd love to also do the seven summits. This is me uh, on a snow wall uh, last January 2017 when I was training to become the first Egyptian woman to climb Everest. But sometimes plans change and things don't really go as you plan because last year there was a lot of um, um, like, you know, headlines, you know, Manal is going to be the first Egyptian, Manal is going to be the first Egyptian. And there was a lot of pressure, but then my expedition failed. And I openly talk about it, even though it was very, very miserable. Um, but Everest has been put to sleep for a bit until I figure out a lot of things, and we'll get back to that later. So I have three milestones to, get, um, to talk about. So three, at, at three different ages, like things happened that changed my life or, or literally turned my life around. So when I was 21, when I was 30, and then when I was 34. And of course, I'm 38 now, so, so I'm going to start with the, when I was 21, and I'm going to do, uh, take you back in time to summer 1999. You weren't born, Jenna. You weren't even like a plan. Anyway, so um, in 1999, I was not veiled. I grew up in an international school. I actually hated hijab so much, but um, we were in a bus going to Hergada from uh, Cairo. And it was my family and my cousin's family. And when we were about to reach Gharda uh, or Hergada, I don't know what happened, but I was sat in the second row. And I asked my cousin, who was sat sandwiched between my parents, to swap seats. No idea why that happened. So we swapped seats. He moved backwards. I moved to the front seat. And I was between my parents. I think because I told him I wanted to sleep or something. Um, and then five minutes later, the front tire of the bus blew up. We were going at a speed of 140 kilometers per hour, which is quite fast. The bus tripped three times. We got into the desert. Uh, my dad got thrown out of the bus. He broke six ribs and his shoulder bone. Um, Muhammad, with whom I had swapped seats with, broke two bones in his spine. He was paralyzed on the spot. And nothing happened to me. So hope I don't get like emotional every time. So Muhammad passed away three months um, after the, the accident. And alhamdulillah, my dad recovered um, about 98%. He's, he's alhamdulillah, obviously still alive. Um, and this has been like 18 years ago. But the fact that nothing happened to me shook something inside. Like, I wasn't a bad girl or anything. Like, my dad taught me how to pray five times a day, fast Ramadan, but that's it. That was all that was expected of me um, as a 19-year-old girl. But I remember, like, having been in all this, you just ask yourself, so who am I or why would God give me a chance to live and take someone's life? Like, like what's in me, you know? And let's say my life wasn't taken, let's say I survived. I would have survived with, with a lifetime paralysis. I've always been in sports. I've always been in the track and field team. If I had been confined to a wheelchair for the rest of my life, that would have finished me, literally. But alhamdulillah, 
nothing happened to me whatsoever. And I started, all, like, all these questions, like, when you're 19, like, you, you don't know anything about life. I'm sorry if, if anyone is 19 years old here, but, like, you think that, you, you know, you got your life figured out. You actually don't. And I struggled figuring out, like, of course, there was, like, a ton of a guilt, you know, like, you know, well, it, was I the cause of making Muhammad go? Obviously not, because, you know, fate, it's, it's fate. He was meant to go, and Muhammad was only 34, and he had two kids. So his whole family was, like, com completely disrupted. And I remember I panicked, and I was struggling with all these feelings. My parents never forced hijab on me. They never forced anything that didn't really match my lifestyle. And it took me about a year and a half when I reached the conclusion that I, as a thank you to God, I wanted to put hijab on. And it came as a shock to everyone. Like, I remember I went and I spoke to my dad, and I was like, you know, I want to wear hijab. And he's like, uh, what? He's like, it doesn't suit our lifestyle. We travel a lot. Your friends are foreigners, most of them. People are going to judge you. You play a lot of sports, and it's going to stop you. This is exactly, I remember this conversation so well. And I take pride in the fact that as a 21-year-old girl, you know, that was a year and a half later after the accident, as a 21-year-old girl, I actually stood in front of my dad and I, and I said, wait a second, so you're telling me that, you know, you, you educated me in the best schools <clears throat> and you're telling me that people are going to judge me based on how I look and how I choose to exercise my faith and you want me to be okay with that? Why should I just literally go with the flow? And he's like, look, this is your decision because it's a big deal. Like, people don't understand, but it's a big deal. It turns a woman's life, like, from eight to that literally like 180 degrees. I love my hair, I look better with my hair, I'm more free with my hair. People don't judge you as much. And, and I remember, oops, sorry. I remember, um, just gonna throw, go. yeah, that was just the um, slides. I remember I, I just felt like it, the pressure was huge because in my school we used to watch a lot of documentaries of, of Muslim women. And, and obviously I'm Muslim, but like the, the way that media portrays us to the West is horrific. It, like, like, for example, you know, you see women dressed all in black and they're not allowed to go out and they're not allowed to speak and they're not allowed to work and they're not allowed to seek education. This is how we grow up even as Arabs if we're educated in international schools, sadly, but this is not the case. Two, you see women being banned from sports just because of their hijab. And this still happens in karate. Things have changed in basketball, but up until May 2017, if you're a basketball player, you were not allowed to compete in international championships if you wore hijab. This is not okay. And, and three, like, although this is from a, re a recent research, but they say that most of the time, women are more affected by Islamophobia more than men. So if a woman is walking down the street, she's actually more affected by it than any man. And of course, if you wear hijab, it's even 10 times worse because we obviously look Muslim. So all these things, you know, it, it runs through your head and you have to make a decision for yourself, you know. You either live with the guilt, you, what have you done about it, what have I changed, how have I improved, you know, God gave me a chance to live. And, and I keep stressing that because it is a big deal, I, I, I was going to die. So I decided to wear hijab, regardless of what people will say, it shocked everyone, it was miserable the first like couple of months, everyone, you know, would come up to me, they're like, are you serious? Is that a joke? Because I wore hijab on the 7th of April, 2001. And I remember going to university and people were like, are you cold? Why, why do you have that thing wrapped on your head? And I'm like, I just wore hijab. You should say congrats. 
you know, and, and, and the reactions were different. Like, you know, some people were massively supportive. Some people were just like, a bit like, you know, do you, did you even used to pray? And I was like, wow. So just because I don't wear hijab, you think that I don't pray? And not that hijab, like, you know, speaks anything about you other than the fact that you're Muslim. But I know women who wear hijab who are not as good as women who don't wear hijab. So it's just a symbol of your identity as a Muslim woman. So the second milestone that I'm about to hit is growing into your 20s with hijab and with people's judgments. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm fully going to address the young women in the house because I want you to please, like I beg you, if, if I do anything today, my objective is to shortcut things for you. Like, I, I've struggled so much in my 20s. Like, I, I was like, can I do this? And I'd go and ask my father, can I do that? He's like, no, 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 girls don't do that. You, you think you, you, like, so this is me scuba diving in my hijab. And I remember when I would ask him for, like, permission to go, and he'd be like, woman, are you going to go di scuba diving in hijab? And believe it or not, actually, scuba diving is the one sport where women are actually covered from head to toe. So you, you actually, it's actually more compliant as a, as a hijabi. And, and I only got to do all these things when I actually hit 30. Because when I hit 30, you know, that's the age where you should be married with two or three kids in Egypt and in the Arab world. And if you're not, oh my God, what's wrong with you? Like, why isn't anyone interested in you, you know? So I had literally put my life on hold during my 20s, you know, just scared of, oh my God, I'm going to hit 30, I'm not married. Oh my God, like I haven't done this, I haven't done that. I'm scared to ask my dad for permission. You know, but then the minute I turned 30, I swear, the morning I woke up, I was like, so it happened. 30, still single. I, I've actually accomplished a lot on a work level. Um, I still feel like 15, still feel your age, Jenna. You know, but like, why can't I take control of my life? And that's when I started to change things. So I became a scuba diver when I was 30 years old. By the way, I didn't tell them I was getting um, certified. I just went and I paid for the course, my money, right? And... I just called them because they were in Egypt at the time. I was in Kuwait. I just called them and I said, um, I, just, I, I just got certified as a scuba diver. And today is my first um, like dive. And I remember my parents flipped completely. And, but what were they going to do? And I'm not saying that to, to like, urge young girls to do things behind their parents' back. Remember, I was 30. Okay? But I'm inviting you to have a very open conversation with your parents and speak of the pros and cons. Like, don't just settle for a no if it doesn't make sense to you. Like, it's the 21st century. Everything is digital. You can go on Google now and find out everything good and bad. So, and, and again, I'm not trying to promote a rebellious sort of attitude in, in the women of, of this generation, but just have an open conversation. Now my dad is, like, cool with, with scuba diving. The second cool thing I started doing was <clears throat> I took up mountain climbing. And, and I'm the first Egyptian woman to climb two of the highest seven summits. So apparently there are like seven summits in the world, seven highest peaks in the world. And I'm the first one to, to climb two of those. So the one at the top was my first mountain. That was Kilimanjaro, the highest in Africa. The one uh, underneath is Kenya. That one is Elbrus that Medina should be doing because she's half Russian or whatever. And then this is Ev um, Everest Base Camp. And it's very interesting um, how I started mountaineering because it's the same thing. I found out about mountaineering in 2007 when I was 27 years old. I was watching a TV show about our first Egyptian guy who's, who's, who's climbed a lot of mountains. And I told my dad, wow, I'd love to do that. And I again remember clearly, he looked at me and he's like, what? 
Climbing mountains, are you crazy? You want to climb a mountain, you think you're a guy? I'm like, why do I have to be a guy to climb a mountain? It's a mountain. I go and I climb, and he's like, you're not climbing a mountain. Enough of these crazy thoughts. You can watch it on television. You can watch documentaries. You can watch National Geographic, but you will not ever, ever climb a mountain. And my dad said that. And fast forward into my 30s, when I turned 32, I was like, why am I not climbing mountains? Like, if it's, you know, like, you go see pictures, and, and I believe in coincidences. Like, for example, if you're walking in the street, and then you see a picture of Everest coming up, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to climb that mountain. Or these little signs, I believe in these, in these signs. So again, I went and I paid for my expedition, and I called my dad, and I was like, I'm just letting you know uh, that I'm going to be climbing a mountain this summer, and it was March. He's like, what mountain? So I discovered something about Arabic parents. And please, parents, forgive me for saying that, but I'm your age, you know, so. There's a big difference between asking their permission and telling them that you will do something and have an open conversation with them about how you're going to finance it, why is it safe, why is it not safe. Do you get the difference? Because if the answer is yes or no, the answer will be no. If you're, if you're asking them to like give you that, it will definitely be no. I am assuring you. Just like I'm 100% sure that my name is Manal and I'm standing here today. When you go ask them, can I travel to Spain for summer? The answer is no. But dad, look, I've actually looked with a few friends and we're going to Spain this summer. So they're going to be like taken aback a little bit. You know, but of course you have to have their blessing. Provided you give them all the information. My dad had all the contact details until today. Like this morning I sent him Medina's number because he wanted to know like in case anything happens, who should I reach? I said Medina. So like, like he knows. You know, I just like, before you call her, please make sure that you call me so that you don't go like all crazy. So, so yeah, have an open conversation with your parents before you deprive yourself of amazing things because life is so beautiful. And if you're not following your passion, I swear you're missing out on so much. The mountains changed my life. Scuba diving changed my life, literally. These are, these are like more mountains of my latest expeditions. This is the expedition of South America. I attempted the second highest mountain in the world. It's called Aconcagua. But unfortunately, um, we got hit by a terrible snowstorm. I was locked up in a tent for 72 hours. I was talking to my fingers, praying that they don't freeze for good, literally. And, and I felt like, khalas, I'm going to get frostbitten and I'm going to die. You know, you're at 5,600 meters above sea level. Nobody spoke English. I'm by myself. It was the worst experience of my life. It felt like death. And actually, when they told us that every expedition is coming down, I was actually relieved. And, and now, like, like, I still have a big dream to climb Everest, but I don't know how it's going to take me, and I need to go reattend this mountain that broke a little bit of my courage with mountains, because it's obviously a big mountain. So, inshallah, khair. This is my latest um, mountain in September. So the first Arab woman to climb Everest got in touch with me last summer. And she said, I heard, I read your post on Instagram, and I see how scared you are of mountains. I want to break that fear, and I want to help you. So bless her. She sponsored me to go to attempt Tubqal, which is the highest mountain in North America. And this is a goat at the top of the mountain, by the way, photobombing my, my picture completely. Really. Like, I was so mad at that goat. But anyway. Um, marathons is, is a different story. Um, year to date, I've run um, eight marathons. Today is my eighth in Oman, very proud. But there's also a, a thing about marathons. So I started marathon uh, uh, running in, in uh, 2014 when we met. And I, again, I did it behind my parents' back because 
the, how can a woman run 42 kilometers? Guys, there is no scientific evidence that marathon running harms your ovaries or harms your babies or harms your ability to conceive in any way. And, and like, I remember my dad is like, you know, your bones, your knees, your hips. I'm like, well, I'm 32 now. Like, I, I, I want to go do these things, you know? Actually, I was 34, sorry. I was 34 when I ran my first marathon. And it was Dubai Marathon there. And then it just became like one after the other. And khalas, you know, today they know that I'm an Oman. It, it becomes normal. See, because you prove to them that you come back in one piece. You know, I still walk, talk. My hips are fine. My knees are fine. I'm in pain now. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, I, I will never know if I can't have babies or have babies. But like, yani, it's, it doesn't affect your ovaries for sure. So I've run Dubai Marathon twice. Um, I've done Kuwait Marathon. I've done Luxor Marathon, which is Egypt's only international marathon. This one is in Wadi B, which is partly Oman, right? Was um, Wadi B? It's very close to Dubai, but it's uh, Wadi B. Ah, oh, okay, cool. My my biggest achievement here to date in terms of marathon training was um, my my China Wall, um, and again they were they freaked out when they knew that I was going to China to run, and my mom is like, I'm gonna say this in Arabic, but you know there's this expression that says and they're like, no one ever mentions anything about And they were like making fun of it, you know, like, you know, why are you in China running? I'm like, because the marathon is in China. And that's it. You know, that, that's the answer that, that you give them. This is uh, the marathon before this one. It's New York. Uh, amazing. It was like, this is my first major marathon. So in the world, there are like seven uh, major marathons. And, and this was my first major. So it's a lot of pride. Moving on. Um, I know this is not like in, in chronological order or whatever, but at, at 34 years old, something started to happen to my heart. This is where the story gets interesting. Because just like when I was 19 and 21, and I wanted to wear hijab, and I had this conversation with my father, um, you know, that I wanted to wear hijab, I went again to my father saying that I wanted to take off my hijab. So it was, it was an interesting uh, conversation because... First of all, he said, the first thing he said was like, I never forced you to do it when you were 21. I'm not going to force you to keep it on when you're 34. Makes sense, right? So my dad is open-minded in that sort because like, it's a very personal thing, hijab. And I was like, so what do you mean? He's like, if you want to take it off, take it off. But like, you're 34 years old. You've been wearing it for 13 years. It's become a part of your identity, right? And the reason why I was having these thoughts and ideas is was because... And I, again, I speak about this very openly, but I had moved to Dubai. Dubai is very cosmopolitan. You do not see a lot of locals around. They're, they're not widely seen. Like I grew up in Kuwait, you always see hijabis. It, it makes you comfortable. In Egypt, you always see hijabis. In Dubai, it's a little bit low key. And as a hijabi, you stand out. Every time I'd run a marathon, like you know, one girl in hot shorts, tank top, you'd look at me and be like, uh, aren't you gonna be hot? And I'm like, yeah, well, eventually we're all gonna be hot. But these are so many layers, and they would like touch me like that. And, and, and I remember at the beginning, I'd get irritated, so irritated and offended, you know? And, and I was like, like, this is my region, by the way, you know? Like, if I'm, if I'm wearing all these layers, because I come from here, you know, we're, we're not really raised to be running in hot shorts and stuff as much as I would love to, but I can't. And I was like, oh, yeah, girl, but like, you're going to suffocate and around your neck, etc. So... The pressure was so much, to be honest, that I just wanted to be like, you know what, I'm done. Um, and then something else was happening, especially in Egypt. 
Um, these kind of images were circulating in social media and media, where women in burkinis were banned from public beaches and posh hotels in Egypt, believe it or not. And this happens year to date. And it, it, like, it's very, very, very hard for me to say this as an Egyptian, that this happens in my Muslim country. You know, that year to date, we have places in Egypt that bans women. We have places in Egypt that has a big sign uh, uh, like outside the restaurant saying no pets and no hijab. And this is in an Arab Muslim country. So all of a sudden, like how I look is sort of equalized with a pet who is actually a pest to some people in restaurants. So the way I look can actually pester anyone who's attending or is, is in that posh place. It hasn't happened to me where I was in a posh restaurant or a posh hotel yet because I would have fought them with my heart and soul. But I know a lot of women and when I come to speak about my social media group, this has been recurrently mentioned that women have been harassed and, and banned. And if you're not a strong woman and you don't have a voice, you'll just give in and be like, oh, okay, sorry, I, I, I'll leave. You know, It has actually happened to me where I was not allowed in um, an international concert in Dubai because of my hijab. This physically happened to me. And I took it to media, and if you Google my name and put seven days, because that's the name of the magazine, you'll see how much of a big deal I did, but that was in 2011. Because um, they're like, well, there's alcohol inside. I was like, yeah, I know. But there's alcohol everywhere in Dubai. There's alcohol on Emirates Airlines. If you're going to the States and you're flying a 13-hour flight, the guy next to you could be drinking the whole flight. I'm not going to be like, ah, oh, excuse me, guys, I need to get off this plane. The guy next to me is, is drinking, because as of our Islamic... Uh, traditions were not allowed to be like around alcohol or whatnot. But what I'm trying to say, my point is, you need to have an open mind a little bit. You know, if this has become a part of our culture, then we need to go with it. I'm gonna be there listening to the music. I'm not gonna drink. I'm not gonna be sat around particular people who do drink. But it, just let me, um, you know, like enjoy. So I just felt like in 2014 for me was the anti-hijab plague. It was hitting a lot of women. And a lot of my very close friends were taking off their hijab. They were losing it. They were losing the battle with hijab, basically. Because trust me, it's so much easier to go against the current than to actually put your foot down and be like, you know what, I'm going to do something about it. And that's where my story becomes inspirational, I think. Because had I not, had I given to these, you know, I swear to God, I used to call, like, receive phone calls from people. So when are you taking off their, your hijab? Like my close family members and friends. I'm like, what sort of question is that? And they'd be like, well, this one has done it, this one has done it, come on. It's like, it's not a cool thing anymore. I was like, why should hijab be a cool thing or not a cool thing? It's like a relationship between you and God, you know? So um, I had a moment where I was like, you know what? I'm not a dead fish to go with the flow. If you're a dead fish and the, the current is going so strong, you're just gonna be sweeped over, correct? I wasn't like that, I, I'm, I'm not dead, you know? And, and it's always good to go back and remember, why did you put on hijab for the first place? You know, I, God saved me from being in a wheelchair or paralyzed for the rest of my life. I might have not been here. Like my life could have ended in 1999 uh, on that one summer day, you know, but, but God chose to give me more time to live. Who knows why? Maybe this is, this is the reason why, Allah Alam. So, on August 24th, 2014, I decided that I'm going to do something about this. And, um, and, and I call it the sink or swim effect. 
you know, I did not sink, but I carried on swimming. And I founded a group called Surviving Hijab. It, it's a closed group, which means that it does not pop up at anyone that Manal Rossum on Facebook has created a group that's called blah, blah, blah. So it's a group, it's not a page, it's a group. Um, Non-Muslim women are welcome. Muslim women who don't wear hijab are welcome. The only thing that's not welcome is negativity or attacking other members because this is not a platform for democracy. Like, uh, like at the beginning when I found it and then people were like, well, this is not hijab, you're wearing tights or you're wearing this. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what every woman is going through. Even if she shows a little bit of her hair or even half her hair, you don't know what this woman does. Maybe she does qiyam al-layl. Maybe she gives sadaqah every day. Maybe she, maybe she, does, she, she feeds her cat or cats in the street every single day that makes her a better Muslim than women who are you know, covered from head to toe, literally. So for me, I refuse to judge women. Like, with, like I, I will fight this as hard as I can. On that one night, I added 80 women. I called it surviving hijab because that's what's ha that was what was happening. I wanted to survive hijab. Like hijab was dying, dying literally, and I wanted to survive it. And, and, and the fact that the name was so catchy, I think people like, it's not loving hijab or my life with hijab or these common names that you would normally expect about hijab. The next morning I woke up after having added 80 women, the group was booming. So it's free um, to add anyone that you want, but we have to, as admins, you ha we have to approve. Because some women are like, maybe they maybe make mistakes or whatever. Sometimes they add their husbands by mistake. I don't know how you can add your husband by mistake. But I always got like, you know, like women adding guys. And like, oh, sorry, then they text me, sorry. I'm so sorry, I added this guy. It's like, Muhammad Ali. So when, like, how can you add Muhammad Ali by mistake? You know? Um, the group was 140, second day. Within the first week, it was like, how many of you here are on this group? The girls. So you ladies are not? You should join tonight. We're five, well, I'm going to get to that, yeah. So the next week, 2,000, 4,000, we were growing like, it was like, a, like incredible. By November 2014, we hit 40,000 women, women only, closed group from all around the world. And the group was so active to the point that um, um, like uh, TV channels started to get in touch with me. And mind you, I don't have any social media background. Like, I'm a pharmacist. You know, I have a Facebook account. I didn't even have Instagram at the time. Telling me, oh, we need to invite you. It was Rotana, Rotana Khalijiyah. And that was my first ever live interview, and I was going to die. I remember, like, I, I, I was having, like, major palpitations. I felt like my heart was going to stop. I was live on television talking about why I founded a women's only group that supports women in hijab. And it's a very sensitive topic, huh? It's not, it's not easy, you know, just to go out there and, and, and talk about it. And I also didn't want my foreign friends to think like, well, is Manal going to be like a terrorist? Or what, what's happening to Manal? Like, what are these like, you know, uh, terrorist like maybe tendencies that she's got? So um, 80 girls, August 2014, 40,000 girls, November 2014. And then after that, I felt so empowered as a woman with a voice. And I remember, like, like I told you earlier, growing up in my 20s, um, I always knew I had this wild soul in me, but it was so oppressed by society. Like, and, and the problem is you give in, you know? You hear what people say, like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Can't do this, I can't do that, I can't speak up. What will people say? Literally, what will people say? And this is one sentence that we need to completely, like, 
banish from our vocabularies as, as, as Arab girls and as, as you know, like Muslim women because what will people say? Well, who are these people that, that you care about, you know? So for the first time in my life, I, I felt like I had the courage and strength um, to contact a multinational brand and ask them, why aren't you catering for Muslim women? And I remember I, t I got the um, email address of a guy called Thomas Wolf. He's the head coach of, of, um, of, of Nike coaches in the Middle East. And I remember, and, and there, this is a very nice quote that I love, and it says the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. That was exactly what was going through my mind when I decided to write that email to Coach Tom. You know, because I was like, well, I'm not going to do it. She's not going to do it. Nobody's speaking up. All we see is just women running around in shorts. They look great. I appreciate that. I love it. They don't represent me. You know, it's the Middle East. And that's exactly what I put in my email. So this is my email uh, to Coach Tom. This is the actual email. This is a screenshot of it. Um, I said, dear Tom, my name is Manal. I got your email address from Salma. Um, blah, blah, blah. I attached this photo of me having run... Uh, a half marathon just like a few weeks before and I said I have recently started a group on Facebook precisely 12 weeks ago for veiled women in order to help them survive the hijab in the Middle East and across the world and, and, and never have the hijab prevent you from doing anything and then I put the question see the reason why I'm contacting you is because I have noticed that all the pics featuring the Nike club runners have no uh, veiled women in them it's the Middle East shouldn't we have some and I just pressed send, literally. I was like, you know what, what what's, what's the worst that can happen? It will either go to his junk, or he will think, you know, who's that crazy girl? You know, like, go away. Khalas, done. I mean, nothing's going to happen, right? I went to sleep, and I swear to God, like, I just went to sleep as a runaway strategy. I was like, okay, okay, I just want to go to sleep, because I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and I remember going to bed that day. I just put my head on the pillow. I was like, wow, imagine he responds to my email. And the next morning, I got an email from Coach Tom. Literally. I woke up, first thing I did, checked my email. And this is his email that he sent me. He said, Manel, thank you for your email. Its timing is perfect. And I have been having similar conversations, subhanAllah, with the Nike team here. How are you set to meet at 3 p.m. tomorrow? And I showed up. I went. And I was so scared, you know. But I was like, if I can have a voice to represent 40,000 women, I can perhaps have an open conversation with a guy who probably doesn't really understand much about our culture, but it turned out that he did. And he told me that the, the reason why they're not featuring Muslim women, one of two things. Either they can't find hardcore athletes who wear the hijab and who want to be featured, or as, as, since Nike is a genuine brand, they can't bring in like someone like Heather and then put her, because she, she could pass for a Lebanese, for example, put her in a hijab and be like, oh, well, you know, Heather is like a hijabi runner, because that's not genuine. Nike can't do that. And I was like, well, if you ask me, like I'm 34, I know like I'm too old to model, ha, 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 but if you ask me, I'd love to model for Nike, you know? And he's like, hold that thought, and I'll get back to you. And I held that thought, but then the series of, of, of events that happened were crazy surreal. Coach Tom called me um, about two weeks later. Uh, you have a photo shoot this weekend. I'm like, photo shoot for what? And he's like, uh, you're going to appear in, in one of our campaigns. And I was like, no, no. And I remember I was screaming up and down, like, like I'm jumping up and down and screaming at the top of my head. I, like, I couldn't believe it, you know? 
So this is the first photo shoot I ever did for Nike. And, and um, I, I became the first ever woman to appear. Based on my certifications um, as, as, a, as a fitness instructor, they offered me the role of a Nike Run Club coach in uh, March 2015. And this is just like uh, more of the more photo shoots. And, and I just love how, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but they always put me at the front. You know, and, and this really struck up a lot of, um, like, like, a lot of reactions, you know? It's like, it says a lot, you know? I was having a conversation with this foreign um, person, uh, like, a couple of weeks ago, and they're like, we never thought of, of Muslim women as athletes, you know? We always think of them as mothers, as sisters, as, but we never actually think of them as, as athletes. And I'm like, marathoner, mountaineer, hello, you know? And this is just one of my uh, Nike training club uh, classes. And then more magic happened. In July 2015, they invited me uh, to go represent the Middle East in um, Nike headquarters in Portland, Oregon, in the States. And I'm going to have to tell you about the story because um, I don't like to miss it up. But like, I showed up. And when I was filling in the registration form, I just put, you know, they ask you if you want any special requirements. And I said, um, I'm just a hijabi, so if we have to wear a certain uniform, we need to just make it uh, long sleeves because I won't be able to obviously wear anything else. And when I, when I arrived in the States, there was a kit. I opened it, all shorts, all tank tops. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do now? Take off my hijab? I'm in Portland. Who will know, right? But I was like, I, I put it in the registration form. So I took the kit next morning, and I went and uh, spoke to the girl. And I was like, look, uh, I don't want you to panic. I have my clothes, but I won't be able to wear this. Uh, I swear to God, her face, she was apologizing as if somebody like died. You know, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I don't know how I did that. I was like, totally fine. I have my gear on me. Don't, don't stress. It's perfectly fine. And, and I will give credit to Nike for respecting women so much. And right now, they have campaigns on equality and diversity. And this is what it's about, equality. You know, I was there to represent. So the next morning, she came with a huge bag full of long sleeve tops, long sleeve tights, um, sorry, like full length tights. And, and, and I was like, oh, wow, thank you. Um, but then more magic happened in March 2017. Um, I received a phone call from the marketing director of Nike in, in Dubai, and he's like, I have something that's potentially going to change your life. And I was like, uh, are you setting me up with someone? Like, uh, what is this? Like, am I getting married or what? You know? And then, and he's like, no, something better. And he showed me the hijab that was actually going to hit, you know, the market by, by the end of 2017. He's like, you're going to be the face of it. And I remember I just started crying for everything and for all those years of persevering, going against the flow, hearing like irritating comments about people, you know, thinking, you know, you're, you can't do this or you can't do that, aren't you too hot? Too many layers. But here's a brand that's multinational, that's giant, number one in the world. Nobody can deny that. You know, that's actually coming out to say, this is a product that's gonna cater for you and for what you like to do. It speaks equality. It speaks tolerance. It speaks diversity. And this is a very famous photo. It's, it's gone viral, like, all over the world. And people just, they don't even mention my name. It's like, this is me. Like, you need to put my name there. 
But then the lash back was quite interesting and brutal at the same time. And I just want to like touch points on this because like some of you follow me on, uh, on social media, but um, people don't realize that you know the, you can call us celebrities or whatever. We're not a celebrity. I'm just a, a normal human being, like I said earlier, who just got a great opportunity to do my thing, you know. But um, they don't think that we are human beings in terms that we have a soul, we have feelings, we get hurt by comments. Yeah, and if you read the comments on 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 on, on these posts, it's so brutal. She's ruining the image of hijab for Muslim women. This is not hijab. Women like her need to sit at home and do whatever. Why? You know, and what's the big deal? Why is it a big deal that uh, just because Nike is producing a, a hijab, why is it a big deal? And this is why it's a big deal. One, the Basketball Federation, the FIBA, announced in May 2017 that after having banned women from participating in championships, that it's lifting the ban of women so that they can actually participate in sports whether they wear hijab or not. And they used my image to make the, to make the announcement. And for me, it's like, wow, you know? So this is what changing the world is about. Give me one reason why a woman who has a talent as an athlete cannot participate whether she wears hijab or not. Like, wh why is that even a thing? The next thing, amazing thing that happened also, in September 2017, we were nominated as one of the best designs of the year. And currently, as I stand here in front of you, my picture is up in the D Design London Museum in London, just saying that this, this might be nominated or this might win Design of the Year amidst a lot of others. You know, so currently my photo is up there. Zahra Lari's photo is also um, up there. Zahra Lari is the first Emirati figure skater to compete in hijab on a global level. And me and her, we, like, um, we were both featured in the Nike, Nike campaign. So what I'm trying to say is that my face is up in a museum, you know, wearing, wearing the hijab, you know, to tell the world that women are, Muslim women are not scary. Muslim women are athletes. Um, Nike supports us, and, and it's a big deal. And I remember even some people like, well, what is this swoosh on the side of your thing? It's like, why not? You know, actually, believe it or not, I feel more confident walking around with that swoosh in my head when I'm running than if I'm like running like this. People stop looking, or they actually look and they admire how you look. Um, the third fascinating thing is that there's this, um, and I invite you to follow her, there's this amazing account on Instagram called Hijarbi. So what she does is she, she buys Barbies, like real Barbies, okay, and she sues herself clothes. So she made me into a Barbie. So this is Barbie, um, like, posing like me, you know? So, I mean, I mean like, it's, it's a bit weird because it's not, it's not like it's on sale or anything, but little girls like Jannah, like, when I was a little girl, I never grew up with a hijabi Barbie. And had these things actually existed, you know, when we were little girls, it would have reshaped our whole mentality about hijabi women. Like, I wish I played with a hijabi Barbie. My Barbie was like in, in like a mini skirt and her legs were amazing and blonde hair, you know, and you know, super white, super this. Where's the diversity? These are the kind of things that reverse manipulation of, of society. We're manipulated to think that the only way to move forward or to be successful or to achieve in life is by looking a certain way, which doesn't necessarily go with our culture.
So I just want to announce that year to date, last night actually, um, Surviving Hijab has hit 580,000 women. So uh, this is like a year to date. And, and the, the, amazing, the amazing thing that, that, that happened, believe it or not, and um, I, I hope you actually also receive it with so much fascination as I have received it, Facebook has got in touch with me, like Facebook like Mark Zuckerberg. Like when they come, I was like, wait, is this Facebook like Mark Zuckerberg Facebook? Or So Facebook has got in touch with me. And um, this is the vice president of, of product partnerships, and uh, he's based in San Francisco. He's Mark Zuckerberg's right hand. He came to Dubai in, uh, in October, and he asked to meet me. And thank God I didn't know who he was, because I just received a phone call from Facebook, and they're like, we have this VP. I heard it VIP. And for me, nobody's VIP. Like, like when you say, tell me, oh, this is a VIP, nobody's VIP. We're all normal human beings, you know, and, uh, like down to earth, and we all have a very similar life. So I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, VIP, okay, and? And they're like, yeah, and he's coming to Dubai, and he wants to go on a run with you. So are you free on Monday morning? I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it, you know? And I went to meet this guy with the team, and I didn't know who he was. And he was like, I was like, I know everything about you. I've researched everything about you. We're very proud of the work that you do on Surviving Hijab. What made you, like, start? And I was sharing the story with him, and, like, this guy's super tall, super fast, and I'm running, like, at a speed of, like, five minutes per kilometer, sharing this kind of bridge, like panting the life out of my soul, you know? And then we finished the race, uh, sorry, the, the run, took this photo, um, posted it on Facebook. I asked him for his Facebook. I added him, went on his profile. I was like, oh my God. First of all, he's verified, of course. Went through his photos. All his photos are with Mark Zuckerberg, all of them. I'm not joking. Either in meetings or they're running together. So I was like, wow, I've actually run with someone who, who ran with Mark Zuckerberg. And the reason why I'm making this is a big deal because Mark Zuckerberg did change the world. You know, he did change the world with, with Facebook, even though Facebook does have its downside, but he's, he's changed the world. So um, he went off to write an article about me in The Entrepreneur. I didn't know about this article. And he called me an emerging unexpected leader. So take this, so this guy, not Muslim, not Arabic, and he believes in me as a leader, when currently we have places in Egypt who don't allow women in hijab. And, and, and this is the irony. And, and like you can look at it from a bad side or a good side. The good side is like, goodness still exists, there's still hope. Um, Alhamdulillah, I got invited, um, is this on social media? Is this, are you still live? Oh, cool. Well, I'll share it with you privately because it's, it's, uh, it's good news. But great things are happening with Facebook. Um, they support me 100%. Anything that goes wrong on the group, because sometimes people try to um, hack the group. Um, I, so alhamdulillah, I have yeah, like their support 100%. Uh, I remember nasty, nasty, cruel women, cruel women on the group. They take the photos, they steal them and they post them in other um, groups making fun of women in hijab. And this still happens, you know? And then women, like I remember when I came back from summer holiday um, in August, last August 2017, I remember there was a storm on the group, you know? And women were like, we're not gonna share our photos on there. Uh, it's not a safe platform for us anymore. Look, if you choose to be on social media, you're taking a big risk, whether your, your account is private or not. Okay, fine, Instagram is a bit different, but if your information is on Facebook, 
you are out there. And anybody can go on your profile and save your photos and do God knows what. So don't tell me that just because you are in a women's only group and women who are, I don't, I don't know what to say, but like crazy women, they, they, of course these women were all deleted and they were identified and removed immediately. Um, I have my spies in other groups. Um, but, but the thing is, you put yourself up, out there and you need to be prepared for come what may. My account is not uh, uh, private on Instagram. Anybody can do whatever. And I'm going to keep it like that to challenge those, those, those crazy people. So I'm done with, with, with my talk. But um, I just have like 10 points and like take home messages, uh, mostly for the girls, uh, for the little girls. And like I said earlier, if I, would, if I will have achieved anything out of this talk today, I just want to shortcut things for you so that you perhaps reach your greatness much faster than, than when, when I have. Like, like I, I started to make it big, as people say, when I was 34. Why not 24? Why not 14? So number one, this is your life and no one else's. Like, no one has the right to control your choices or the way that God made you. Like, I'm very different to my parents. I'm very different to my mom. I love my mom, I love my dad, but they're not mountain climbers. They don't believe in marathon running. They just want me to go back and be a pharmacist, you know, and, and that's it, or, or be married and have like three kids or whatever. But life is not just sometimes about that. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, you need to reach inside figure out what it is. Again, I'm not trying to promote like a rebellious generation here, but I invite you to always have an open conversation every time someone thinks that you can't or tells you that you can't. Two, what is your calling? Everybody has a calling. Jana's calling is her art. So this is one of my youngest fans. She just showed me like a little piece of notebook with all her cartoon drawings. This is her calling. And she's so lucky to have actually touched base on that at the age of 14. I realized today, for example, that my calling is, is, is running and, 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 and mountain climbing. It's my calling. I feel things that I don't feel otherwise. I heal. I literally heal from bad things that people do to me or bad things that people say to me. I'm a very sensitive person. The only way for me to, to overcome this is, is to go on these expeditions and to go on these um, like, like races. Like Medina was having this conversation with me today on her way to the gym. And she's like, how did you run like so fast? I'm like, I had three main issues today that I was thinking about. I'm not going to share with you the issues because it's a bit private, but I shared it with Medina. And I told her, like, I was working inside my head on how I'm going to solve these problems. I had three main problems. And I kind of reached these epiphanies when I ran 26.2 miles, literally. I, I came to conclusions and I came to solutions that if I had stayed at home, you know, feeling sorry for myself, what am I gonna do? But I went out there, ran my fastest marathon, and, I, and I'm so proud to be here with you today and giving this talk after my fastest marathon because it's a big deal for me. Three, there will be people and there will be your people. So it's people versus your people. Please, I beg you, if you're 12, if you're 22, if you're 42, if you're 52, please surround yourself with people who love you for who you are and believe in your mission. Like, I swear to God, the, the, and, and unfortunately, the people who, who will believe in you are very little. 
And the people who will not believe in you are so many. And that's why most of us don't really reach out for the stars. Because when you sit with someone, they're like, oh, come on. How are you going to convince your dad you know, to go on this mountain expedition? Your dad will never, ever agree. Or write to Nike, are you crazy? Why would Nike even open your email? But I did it. I did it. And I did all these things that I, I, like, I, I dreamt about one day. And it all starts with you envisioning yourself somewhere. And I swear to God, it's not just you know, like messed up things that we read in books or self-help books or whatever. This is the real thing, guys. You just sit there. I want to run China Wall. You see yourself there. You close your eyes. It's going to happen. You know, I believe in the universe bringing stuff into your way to achieve these things. So stray away from negative people. Stray, like, even if there's a girl who's always bullying you, this is bullying. And bullying doesn't only happen when you're in school. Bullying can happen when you are at a corporate level. Bullying can happen when you're like 38 years old. I was recently bullied, you know, but never mind what the exact experience was, but bullying does happen and people will be mean sometimes. And you need to make peace with that and move on and, and look ahead. Number five, your heroes. Who are your heroes? If you look up to someone, please stalk the life out of them. Stalk them. Contact them. Jenna does that. Okay? Jenna was stalking me so much. I was like, okay, I'm either going to lose my brain with this girl because she's like asking me, when is the talk? When is the race? How much are you running? When are you running? What time? Where? And I'm like, Jenna, I'm not from here. You know, like, I, I don't know anything. I, I just, I'm, I'm going to give you information. And then, but the fact that she was so passionate, it touched my heart and I felt bad because I was like, who is this girl? Like, why does she believe in me so much? And, and it really touches my heart that someone who doesn't know you follows you with their heart and soul. So thank you, Jenna. Thank you. And I, and, and I could have done one of two things. I was like, look, this is a crazy child. I, I don't have time for this. Or give her a chance to come here with her mom, who's my age almost. So I could probably be like your, your, like your second mom. So these are the kind of things that we need to do. I stalked Omar Samra, you know, the, the Egypt's number one mountaineer. And I really did stalk him. And this was back in the days when there was no Instagram. When Facebook was just starting, I would, I would text him and bless him. I will give him that. He would respond to my messages. And this is one lesson that I learned from him. Make time for your followers or people who believe in you. You know, there was, he, I'm a girl. Like, why would, like, why would he respond to me? And I remember, like, I would go to him. He's my age, Omar. But I would be like, oh, my dad doesn't want me to go mountain climbing because there are no hijabis. But he would still sit and talk to me and be like, well, you know, you can talk to your dad. God bless his soul for having the patience to actually sit and, and listen, listen to me. So your heroes, stalk them, but not too much. Like, you know, just have a line, you know. Um, there's a box as Arab girls and, and girls sometimes in general that we are confined to. You know, you, you can only do this. You can only do that. Um, you're not allowed to do this. If you just like pick your head outside, it's going to be like, I don't know what. Don't. Don't, because you know what? There is, literally, there is no box. There is no box. Like, the world is so massive, so huge. All you got to do is just envision yourself, dig in, and go for it. And if you fail, you will have tried. And that's it. Seven, self-expression. Women in the house, don't be scared to speak up. At work, at home, everywhere. Do not be scared to speak up. If you don't speak up, nothing will change. If you speak up, 
things might change or might not. We don't know. But if you don't speak up, nothing will change. You have to express yourself. If you don't like someone, you don't have to be their friend. If you don't like your life, you've got to do something about it. If you don't like your job, if you don't like your boss, fine. That, there's a fine line because in the Middle East, when you're a strong woman, it's frowned upon. Okay? Unfortunately. Unfortunately, if you're a strong woman, they don't like that. However, if it's a like Western woman who's speaking up, oh, that's fine because she's from the West. Apologies, ladies, but this is exactly how it is. You know, I'm Middle Eastern. I, this is my day in, day out challenge. You know, why are you like, how can you speak to me like that? I was like, by the way, I'm very respectful. My, I'm very calm. I'm just saying you things how, 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 how they are. You might get lucky and get what you want. You might not. But always do not settle for the status quo. Because status quo is not a good place. You will feel weak forever. Eight. What will people say? There are no people to worry about, literally, in this world. Other than your parents' blessings, do not care about what will people say. I grew up, like, literally choked up. What will people say? Oh, my God, my issue, you're 27. You're 28, two years. Oh, my God. And I felt like, what, what's this deadline that we put for women? You know, you need to marry at this age or do that. What if I got married and got divorced? What if? We don't know. What, maybe, maybe I wasn't going to be happy if I get married, right? My point is, do not limit your goals to what will people think of you or, or how they will perceive you. Because, honestly, these people don't pay your rent. They will not come out and save you if anything bad happens. And this is the reality of the situation, you know? And I would rather have you have one friend or even be on your own than have a bunch of people surrounding you putting all their negativity on your head. Number nine, just keep swimming. No matter what people tell you, just keep going. I could have taken off my hijab in 2014. I could have listened to my dad thinking that there are no girls who climb mountains, you know, and, but no, I kept fighting. I kept swimming and going and researching and giving him information and I would fail and I would go back. Persist, 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 persevere, persevere because this is what will bring the change. Finally, dreams. Write them down, talk about them, go on and achieve them. You hear? Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. This has been the Ubicool Talk. You can catch us every other Wednesday of the month with an inspirational talk of famous adventures. Thank you for listening. We will catch you next time, Explorer.